All right, so we started a new series last week called Extravagant Trust. And as I mentioned, um, it, the series is based on one of our core values. We have five core values of the church. Pray, give, invite, mentor, serve. Pray, give, invite, mentor, serve. Say it with me. Pray, give, invite, mentor, serve. And so we talked about four of the core values at the beginning of the year. But the fifth one now, we're taking four weeks to kind of develop and steward. And that's this core value of give or generosity. We, we want to develop... As a church, we want to develop a culture of generosity as a church. We want our church as an organization to be generous. We want, uh, when people in our community think about Fairfax Church, we want them to think about a place that is generous. We want those in the church to be generous. We want people to be generous with their, their time, their resources, their emotions, their lives, the, the, the money that God has entrusted to the care, like in every way. We want to have folks in our church to um, live a life of generosity because it's a huge part of our spiritual growth. That's why. Not because we want to meet the budget, but because it's a huge part of our spiritual growth. In fact, if someone walked in here today and said, I want to I write a huge check and I want to meet all of the expenses in the budget, like I want to cover the whole budget for the rest of the year. First of all, that would be uber cool. And if anyone came in with that idea, I'll be out in the lobby after the service. Love to talk to you. That would be fantastic. Uh, but here's, and it would guarantee our financial health for 2023, absolutely would guarantee that. But if it didn't cause us to come up with an even bigger vision for advancing the kingdom that required radical generosity from everyone who's a part of Fairfax Church, it would actually kill our church. If people stopped being generous because all of the needs were being met, Someone else was taking care of it. Someone else was writing checks, so I don't feel like I have to. Like that would kill the church. It would stunt their spiritual growth because spiritually, people would begin to wither and die. And that's because kingdom generosity and spiritual growth are inseparable. They are two sides of the same coin. They are inextricably connected to each other. You can't have one without the other. If we aren't living generous lives, we aren't growing spiritually because spiritual growth requires trust. We talked about that last week. It requires us to take a posture of trust. And in a culture that defines your importance and your value and your worth by the stuff that you own or the stuff that you do, it takes a ton of trust to live genuine, generous lives in this kind of culture. Healthy families, um, they talk about money. Uh, my wife, Donna, grew up in a home that um, had a very unhealthy relationship to money. Uh, there, there was a lot of conflict every time the conversation came up. And so when mom and dad started talking about money, uh, Donna would, you know, go somewhere else because it wasn't necessarily, it would always end in some kind of conflict. And it caused 
her to have a lot of anxiety about, about conversations about money, about talking about money. I grew up in a very different kind of environment where it was uh, talked about more freely. It was a, a healthier kind of view towards money. And so when Don and I got married, we kind of brought that, each of us brought our different baggage from different families that we grew up in and, and the way in which we relate to money and talk about money and conversations about money. Every time I would bring up, like I would bring up money, I would bring up conversations about the budget and this and that. And Donna would immediately kind of get anxious just about the conversation. And it wasn't, it wasn't about the tone. It wasn't about being accusatory or anything like that. Just the very conversation about money caused her to be very anxious because she had never been in an environment where a conversation about money was normalized, where it was kind of a normal healthy thing to do and to talk about. And at Fairfax, we want conversations about how we view money, how we handle money, how we deal with money, about the role that money plays in our life, about what God has to say about money, all of that. Like we want that to be normalized. We want to talk about money in the same way that we talk about community or worship or relationships or the kingdom or all other kinds of things that are a part of our spiritual journey. And so one of the things that we're going to do over these remaining three weeks of the series is we're just going to have a little conversation with some folks in our church, a little interview with folks in our church around this whole issue of generosity. And today uh, I want to interview a couple of folks who have been a part of Fairfax for uh, a long time, a lot of you know them, they've been involved in ministry in a lot of different ways, Andy and Trisha Porth. And so would you welcome Andy and Trisha Porth up to the platform? All right. First of all, guys, thank you so much for being willing uh, to do this. So uh, before we jump into the conversation just about generosity and money and all of that, uh, just tell the congregation, maybe not everyone knows a little bit about you guys. So like how long you've been part of the church, uh, a little bit about your family, things that you've done, ministries that you're involved in at the church. So yeah. Yeah, we've been here about uh, 14 years since 2009. We have three adult children, Madeline, uh, Andrew, and Harrison. Andrew's in the Army, first lieutenant. Harrison's getting married in a couple weeks, which is real excited. Woo! Yeah, so, yeah come on. Be- yeah, and then um, uh, Madeline, our oldest, has worked in the great room. Some of you may know her, and uh, she's out there now working in the kitchen uh, right now. So, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Go, Madeline. Exactly. Love Madeline. Yeah, Madeline's our bring your kids. So, um, she's awesome. She's 27, so she's our oldest. And we have worked with Capernaum, the Young Life Ministry that has been here for teens for, I guess, 12, however 12 long it's been here years. is yeah, how long we've yeah. done it. Uh, and uh, I work with uh, the kids uh, ministry, so I know some of your kids there work with the older elementary kids. I also teach on Thursday nights a Bible study for men and women here. Yeah, uh, and online, yeah. it's awesome. It's a wonderful um, yeah. group of people, and I've been doing that for about five years. So we're about to start up again, and then um, I'll let you talk about Friends for Life. Yeah, so I've been doing Friends for Life, which is for adults with special needs. It's kind of right after Capernaum, after 22, and then I do the Hanger, 
So we talked about Josh. I was teaching when he was a student there, which is really cool to see how far he's come. <laughs> and then I do the prayer team, and I also do a food ministry with the fish program with Jen Bellows. So. Yeah, we may have you at the ordination service tell some stories about yes. Josh when he was uh, younger. Yeah, and Trish, you were also uh, involved and kind of led the Got a Minute that we just yeah. Did. So yeah. the writing program, they said we we are working on these devotions, and I'm all about you know anything that's going to talk about the Old Testament, and the New Testament, all that. So they said, let's write uh, the Bibles, the history of the Bible in these one to two minute segments. And yeah. it's so much fun. That That's writing so team cool. was fabulous. That's yeah, so was cool. Great. Well, you guys live uh, such a generous lifestyle and have been so generous to Fairfax in, in so many ways with your time, your gifts, your resources, all of that. Um, let me just ask you, like, why, why do you give? Like, why do you give? Why do you, and why do you give to Fairfax? So the giving comes, the invitation to give is a reminder to me of the relationship. It's an invitation to, uh, to accept what Christ has done, the relationship, the way that he has said, you know, I want this with you. Uh. And getting to serve, getting to give, getting to pray, worship, all of those things are invitations to be a part of that. And so for us, it's praying through when we have that when we hear that call to um, this ministry is happening, immediately we say, okay, what are we gonna do? Are we supposed to give? Are we supposed to pray for it? Are we supposed to go, serve, teach, whatever uh, that thing is? And giving is one of um, those things. Giving for me is very relational. Yeah. And uh, I know we're gonna talk about this in a minute, but yeah. it's um, my danger is always when it slips into transactional, like when it becomes about the money and not about the opportunity to join God in the work he's doing. Yeah. You know, we pray so hard he will work. And oh, darkened world that desperately needs to know him and giving us part of how he lets us be a part of what he's doing. So yeah. I love that he allows us to be yeah, a part of that. Yeah, I love that language because uh, we serve an invitational God who is inviting us in to things all of the time. Why would we not think that he would invite us in to this opportunity to be generous and to give as well and to be a part of the mission that he's called us to. That's right, very Because cool. it's not about the need, yeah, right? Because yeah. he could fill that way better than he could do yeah, with, yeah. with my talents or anything else. But it's about allowing us to be a part of what he's yeah, doing. I love that. That's cool. Very cool. Yeah, yeah, I didn't grow up in a Christian household, so the concept of tithing, I was like, well, wait a second. And I think I would have <laughs> always told the story, I would have like calculated it all and saved up, you know, like save money for a house and then save money for the tithe. It's not what it's about. It's about sacrificing up at the front. So that was really, for me, fundamental in my initial growth as a Christian, just saying, all right, I'm going to give this right away. Yeah, very, very cool. Now, all of us, especially, I think, living in a place like Northern Virginia, where things are so expensive and it's, it's hard at times to be able to manage all of the things in terms of the demands and the costs of stuff, and uh, I think all of us struggle at times with just the whole concept of generosity, maybe especially with money. I know that Don and I have struggled at times with that. And uh, what, and what have been your, like as you have dealt with living a generous lifestyle and particularly being generous with the resources that God has provided for you, where have you faced struggles in that? Uh, you know, given maybe out of that background or just comparing, like I know generally what sometimes people make, it's hard, like, oh, why do they have a nicer car, a nicer home, or they upgraded this, yeah. that kind of thing, or just in general, or just when a repair comes along or something unexpected, you're like, whoa, why did we give that money for that special ministry? Well, I should have saved that. Huh. And kind of a little bit yeah. of bitterness creeps yeah. in. And yeah, then, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
judgmentalism, like, well, aren't they giving and stuff like that. Yeah, so yeah. It's always shocking how that comes so quickly. Yeah, the comparison thing is yes. huge. It's just huge, especially in an environment like this, yeah. Yeah. And the expectation thing as well, the uh, reminder that my expectation shouldn't be that I give, therefore the roof will never leak and that hot water heater huh. will never break huh. and, you huh. know, you have a wedding in two weeks and yeah. college just paper, you know, yeah. uh, things will still come up that yeah. God is working through those things, maybe to provide for them financially, maybe in other ways. Yeah. And, and yeah. I need to keep an eye out for that. Yeah. That whole thing of like, and I've dealt with that too, that sense of, uh, God, did you not see what I just did? Did you not see how sacrificial that gift was? And then I'm still dealing with this kind of stuff. And it's really, sometimes that creates a struggle in terms of that. And it, it, it calls us or gives us an opportunity to trust in God in a different kind of way or maybe in new ways. How have you found that you have been able to kind of trust God through this process as you think about living a generous life? I really like what you and Jess said about uh, scarcity. I never really thought of it in those terms, that that was one of the root issues. And I'm not trusting God. I'm like, oh, what about this? What holding? So once you realize God is not about scarcity, that's a complete thing from the enemy, then it's a lot freeing. And then just always having that baseline of, I'm just going to give. That's what I do. That's weekly. Or when something special comes along, that, that great feeling of just acting right away on it, not hemming and hawing and debating and praying about it. Just saying, all right, we're going to give this right away. And it's such a clear near and such a clear signal. And then... Uh, I didn't even realize this because you told us Saturday, but Friday, uh, I was talking to a guy at work kind of late in the afternoon, and, and we were talking about money and raises and things like that. And we both agreed that that's not our life goal is to get more and more money. It turned huh. out that I found out he was a Christian just based on that conversation. Wow. So such an affirmation of what, what we're doing and that yeah. whole lifestyle change. That's so cool. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, and, and then money in our relationship. Um, uh, so trusting God, of course, in that, but also trusting Andy that he is on his knees as uh, well. Uh. Uh, so when I feel I need to give and, and he just doesn't feel it, that he knows I'm also on my knees. So we're trusting each other in that. And I really hadn't thought about that until when you called yesterday and we sort of were chatting as we're putting together an Ikea yeah. bed, right? Uh, for our son, that that, that, uh, that it's a relational thing with us as yeah. well as with God and what a gift that is yeah. to be able to trust him and say, if he's really feeling moved in this direction, I have no reason to think that he has some weird alter. I trust him, 33 yeah. years of marriage. I trust this yeah. man. Yeah. Uh, to be godly and honest. So, yeah. so all of that trust is built in yeah. relational with so, God. So talk about, I, we, we didn't do this in the first service, but uh, <laughs> it, yeah. Uh, so talk a little bit about that because especially when it's a couple and you may, maybe make decisions together as it relates to your budget and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, you're probably not always exactly on the same page. And, and what have maybe you learned about that? Maybe some mistakes uh, that you've made with that. I could share some mistakes that Don and I have made on that, mostly that I've made on that. Uh, yeah, and how you deal with that. Oh, that really hits close to home. So. Yeah. <laughs> just, just being ready to say yes. What, what are you really, like when someone's, invariably someone's more generous than the other. It's like, well, why, why do you feel that way? should just be grateful because the alternative I think is far worse I think that's the thing is I'd rather be on the generous side than on the stingy side and yeah. our, as a matter of fact another thing we're talking to our son Harrison about that and their last sermon at their church in Charlottesville was on stinginess and that uh, one struck home again do uh, I want to be a stingy person or not so but you're right it comes up the words I was going to say was same page or really on the same page and you're not always but you should lean towards the generosity side that's much healthier yeah 
Yeah. We really have not ever regretted when we gave, even uh, when we were like, uh, oh, that was painful. You yeah. know, like we, we do need this repair and there's not a lot, but we've never thought, gosh, I wish we hadn't done that. Wow. It's always a, you know, God, I would love for you to provide, but I'm glad I did that. So we just kind of assume that if we overgive, God will deal with that. Yeah. But undergiving seems to me the bigger risk. Yeah, that's yeah. so cool. Thank you guys so much. You know, you, thank you so much, not just for doing this, which I know is sometimes can be a challenging thing, but just for the way in which you live out a generous life in this community. And there is a contagiousness to that. So thank you for the way that you live that out here at Fairfax. Would you show your appreciation to Tricia and to Andy? So um, Andy kind of touched on it, uh, but last week we, we did talk about this kind of two different mindsets when it comes to money. We talked about this, this scarcity mindset sometimes that we have where we talked about how if we have a scarcity mindset concerning money, we're, we're just driven by, by fear and anxiety that we will never have enough. Um, either we'll never have enough now or we've got enough now, but we won't have enough for the future. And we're just kind of driven by that fear and anxiety. And then we talked about an abundance mindset which we talked about how if we have an abundance mindset concerning money, if we, if we believe truly that there is a generous God who has unlimited resources, and if we believe that God is willing to share those generous resources with us, and he is, um, then we will have all the resources that we need in order to do whatever it is that God is calling us to do, that we can live these, these generous lives and trust that God is going to provide in the process. Now, today, what I want to talk about is, is the illusion of uncertainty. Um, all of us, especially, and I think this is true not just for people in the church or people who live in North, I think all of us, I think humanity, all of us, we crave certainty. Like, we want to believe that we are in charge of our lives and that we can determine the way that life is going to go. And that money is one of the ways that we try to do that. If we have all the money that we need, then we feel that, we, we just feel more certain about the future. And the reality is that nothing could be further from the truth. Certainty is an illusion, like there is nothing certain. You can, be, you can be cranking along, feeling fine about things, figuring like, uh, feeling like you know what the next season of life is going to be like. Have your five-year plan in place. The future is, is pretty clear, and then a worldwide pandemic happens. Or, and then you find out you have stage four lung cancer. Or someone close to you dies. Or someone betrays you. Or you lose your job. Or your business goes under. Or the thing that you invested in that you thought was going to bring such a great return for the future falls apart. Or you experience a bankruptcy. Or whatever it is. And all of a sudden you're reminded of what has been absolutely true all along. 
And that is in this broken, sinful world, certainty is an illusion. And money, unfortunately, money does not change that. And that's the point that Jesus was making in the parable that's recorded in Luke 2. It's this powerful parable. It says, Jesus told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced such a good crop that he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store all of the crops that my land is bringing in. And then he said, okay, I know. I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns. I'll be, does this sound familiar? Like just Northern Virginia, just kind of the Western mindset. I will tear down my barns and build bigger barns. And there I will store all of my grain and all of my goods. And this is the intriguing part of this parable. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many, many years. In other words, I'll say to myself, the future is certain. I'll say to myself that there is a certainty about where things are going. So take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to me, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be for anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. The man thought that by building bigger and bigger barns, his future was secure. But Jesus is making it abundantly clear to the hearers of the parable that bigger and bigger barns, more and more money does not secure your future. That that kind of certainty is an illusion. Now, for most of culture, I would say, uncertainty is considered a bad thing. Like uncertainty needs to be avoided at all costs. Like you need to organize your life around the pursuit of certainty. You need to organize your life in such a way where as many things that can be certain are certain. But for those who follow Jesus, uncertainty is not necessarily a bad thing. Uncertainty, in fact, is what gives us the opportunity to trust God and to grow in our faith. In fact, it's in the midst of uncertainty that God does his most spectacular work. Can I get an amen for that? It's in the midst of uncertainty of things that we did not see coming along, of things that we did not expect that God does his most spectacular work. That's what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 3 when he says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or all we could possibly imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever and ever. If we truly believe that God is able to do immeasurably more than we could even think to ask or that we could even imagine, then we don't have to be afraid of uncertainty. We don't have to be intimidated by uncertainty. We can embrace 
uncertainty as a reality in this broken, sinful world because God is at work in the midst of our uncertainty. Sometimes it's uncertainty that keeps us from living truly generous lives. Like it's uncertainty of the gap. The gap is the distance between the provision of God that you can see right now and the thing that God is calling you to do. There's almost always a gap between the provision, God's provision that you can see right now and the thing that God is calling you to do. That gap almost always exists and that gap is almost always paralyzing. The gap is what keeps us from doing bold things for God. The gap is what keeps us from saying yes to the things that God has called us to do. The gap is what keeps us hanging on to resources that God wants released for the kingdom. Nehemiah, the Old Testament um, figure, Nehemiah, he understood that gap. He experienced that gap firsthand. Nehemiah, if you remember, was the guy who led the project to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. Now, to understand why the wall needed to be rebuilt requires a little bit of context. In 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, invaded Israel and almost completely destroyed the city. He took a bunch of people captive and he brought them all back to Babylon. Now you fast forward 50 years and Babylon has now been conquered by Persia. And the king of Persia, King Cyrus, looks around and he sees all of these people who have come from all of these different countries that have been conquered. And he says, we need to let these people go back home. So the first wave of Israelites goes back to Jerusalem and they're led by a guy named Zerubbabel. And there's about 50,000 of them. And when they get back, they, they rebuild the temple. They do their best to uh, kind of fix the economy, revive the economy that has fallen on really hard times. But the city is still incredibly vulnerable because there's no wall around the city. The wall around a city was what protected it from those who would encroach upon it, hostile groups that surrounded it. And there's no wall around the city. So the city of Jerusalem is still very vulnerable. And Nehemiah, who is still in Babylon, he hears all of this and he feels led by God to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the wall around the city. So he asked the king, which is now King Artaxerxes, if he can go back home and rebuild the wall. And the king says, yes. Now, at that point, Nehemiah has no resources to go. So he feels called by God to go rebuild the wall, which is a huge project. He feels so certain about the fact that he's called by God to do that, that he asks King Artaxerxes to be able to go back to build the wall. And he gets the yes response from King Artaxerxes that, yeah, you can go back and do that. But he has no resources to rebuild the wall. He has no people to help him rebuild the wall. And he has no authority to rebuild the wall. Like he doesn't have a position of authority that allows him to do that. 
And what's really cool about the story, because none of that matters because he is convinced that God is calling him to do that. And what's really cool about the story is that after Nehemiah says yes to what God is calling him to do, then God provides everything that he needs. And he provides it through King Artaxerxes, which is just a reminder that God can provide for us in so many ways and through so many people. And not just in the, in the ways that you would expect, not even just through the church, that God is able to provide in so many ways. And he provides through King Artaxerxes. The king tells Nehemiah that he will give him the people that he needs to rebuild the wall, the money that he needs to rebuild the wall, and he'll give him the finances that he needs to rebuild the wall, and he makes Nehemiah the governor over the province, so now he has the authority that he needs to rebuild the wall. And that's the way God so often works. It's after we say yes to whatever it is that God is calling us to do, that we see the rest of God's provision. It's saying yes that untaps the provision. Oftentimes we miss out on God's provision because we wanna see the provision before we say yes. And God is saying, I'm not going to show you the provision until you say yes. Now when Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem, he immediately does something else that is incredibly generous. Most of the Israelites are in um, huge debt to wealthy non-Israelites who now live in the region. And they've had to leverage their homes and their land and their crops and in some cases even their wives and their children as collateral for loans that they've taken out just to survive. Um, very unfair um, lending practices that were going on, very unjust lending practices that were going on. So Nehemiah sees that and he dips into his own personal reserves and he goes around to all of the foreign creditors and he pays off all of the Israelites' debt. So Nehemiah is already the best governor ever. Like in the midst of all this financial uncertainty, he's, he's created a bunch of jobs. So he's created jobs. He's paid off a bunch of debt and he's given people a sense of, of hope. He's given people a sense that there is a future. And that's not the only generous things that he does. He also does this, we're told in chapter four, verse 14. From the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people, took food and wine from them besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants ordered it over the people. But I did not do so because of my respect, my reverence, my fear of the Lord. As the governor, Nehemiah was entitled to this percentage of people's grains and crops and land and wealth and of everyone who lived in the province. It was called the, 
the governor's tax. And all of the governors who had gone before him had levied those taxes for their own personal gains. But not Nehemiah. He doesn't collect the tax. And, and, and then we're also told that he does something else that's incredibly generous. He says, indeed, I devoted myself to the work on the wall and I acquired no land and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 people. And then look at the diversity of folks that are at the table. Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that surrounded us, some of those were hostile nations that surrounded them. Yet with all of this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because of the heavy burden of labor on the people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. So not only does he not collect the tax, he generously opens his home and provides dinner on a fairly regular basis to 150 people from all different kinds of backgrounds, brings them together around the table. It's this incredible generosity in the face of, of uncertainty. Now, why does Nehemiah do this? Well, Nehemiah does this because Nehemiah is on a mission. Like Nehemiah has a purpose. Nehemiah has a calling. The reason Nehemiah came back to Jerusalem is because of God's calling. Like it's very clear why he is there. God has called him back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. That's his purpose. That's his mission. His generosity flows out of his sense of calling. His generosity flows out of his mission. His generosity flows out of his purpose. And all of us who follow Jesus, like all of us are called. All of us have a purpose. All of us have a mission. All of us have something that God has called us to that is a part of his overarching mission to redeem and restore the world. And it's this calling that sets our hearts ablaze. It's this calling that causes us to, to trust God, even in the midst of uncertainty. Our generosity flows out of this calling. But sometimes we lose sight of our calling. Sometimes we get distracted by other things. And sometimes those other things have to do with money. Maybe it's the struggle to just survive financially, or maybe it's the opportunity to make a lot of money and the thrill that goes with making a lot of money, or maybe it's the fun things that money can buy that distracts us in some way, or maybe it's the preoccupation with making sure that we have enough money for the future, that we have enough money for when we retire, that we have enough money for when our kids go to college, that we have enough money for when our kids get married, like whatever it is, we just, we get distracted and we stop living these bold, generous lives because we lose sight of our calling. Here's the thing about Nehemiah. Nehemiah never lost sight of his calling. He was in Jerusalem to build a wall. That was his purpose. That was his mission. And he never lost sight of that. Even in the midst of incredible uncertainty. He was able to live this big, bold, generous life. And in fact, end up 
finishing the wall in 52 days. So what about you? Are you living this big, bold, generous life? And if not, why not? Like, have you lost sight of your calling? Have you gotten distracted by other things? Have you felt paralyzed by uncertainty? Does the gap between the provision of God that you can see right now and the thing that God has called you to, does that seem overwhelming to you? Like there have been times in my journey, even as a pastor, where I've gotten distracted from my calling and, and, and where I've struggled to live this big, bold, generous life that God has, has called me to live. And usually it's about the gap. Usually it's about the gap between God's provision that I can see in this moment and what I sense God calling me to do. And sometimes it's affected my own generosity. Sometimes it's affected the way that I lead the church, the way that the church functions. Like it has an impact. It keeps us from living these big, bold, generous lives. And every time that happens, God's spirit is just kind of comes along and says, you've just, you've gotten distracted. Like I have called you. I have called this church. Live out your calling. Don't let the uncertainty cause you to be paralyzed. Don't be overwhelmed by the gap that exists between the provision that you can see now from me and what I'm calling you to do. I am a God who will stand in the gap. I am a God who will provide. I am a God who will take care of your needs. So if that's you, if you struggle at times with that as well, give God a chance to stand in the gap. Give God a chance to do something spectacular in the midst of the uncertainty. Give God a chance to, to show up and to show off. Remember the words of Paul that God is able to do immeasurably more than you could ever ask. Immeasurably more than you could ever even imagine. Because of the power of God at work in you. So go ahead. Live that big, bold, generous life that God has called you to live. God, we're so thankful for the fact, first of all, that you are a generous God. That you have given your very life for us, that we have life because you have given your life for us, that you have sacrificed for us, that you give so generously to us. 
And so, Lord, we know that, that we live out, we live generous lives out of the generosity that you show us, but also we live big, bold, generous lives because we are in touch with our calling, with our purpose, with our mission, with the reason that we are on this planet, with the reason that you have put us here. And Lord, when we have gotten distracted, or maybe if we're in a season of being distracted from that calling, from that mission, from that purpose, from that reason that we are here, call us back to you. Remind us that you are a God who stands in the gap. Remind us that you are present and you do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. Remind us that you are a God who shows up and, and shows off, who does spectacular things in the midst of uncertainty. Lord, may we lean in to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And everyone said, amen.